May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Please be seated. Here are two themes from today's gospel. Jesus as our shepherd and Jesus as the gate. The picture at the beginning of the passage is of a sheep pen or sheep fold, like those you can still see in old sheep farming areas in Europe and the Middle East. The ones I know are made of stone and they have walls high enough to keep off predators. The herd cared for by a single shepherd is relatively small and different shepherds can keep their sheep in the same fold overnight. In the morning, the shepherd opens the gate or if the fold is large enough, there may be someone delegated to stay there overnight who opens the gate for him. He calls his sheep out by name. Here are two lines from a poem by Theocritus, the first great practitioner of the genre of pastoral poetry, where pastoral means literally about shepherds. He lived from about 300 to 260 BCE. The shepherd, Lacon, called to his flock, Ho, curly horn, ho, swift foot, leave the tree, pasture eastward where ye bald head see. In Aristotle also, we learn that shepherds would have names for individual sheep. I think the individual names are important. Jesus calls us by name. On Easter Sunday, Reverend Ellendale preached on Jesus meeting Mary Magdalene very early in the morning, and she thought he was the gardener. But then he said to her, Mary, and she knew that it was Jesus. One reason it's important that Jesus knows us individually by name is that through the Holy Spirit, he guides us along the paths that are right for us individually. The paths that will take each, each one of us to our destination. These paths are not the same just as our names are not the same. I preached to you before about the name on a white stone that God will give us when we get to heaven. But we do not yet know those names, even though I think God already knows them. Jesus is telling us that the Good Shepherd calls us now by our present names, the ones we do know. Our psalm for today is probably the best-loved psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23. 
I used to be an elder in a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the congregation was divided up into districts for elder visits. Some of the members in my district were very old and in nursing homes, and they would not know who I was or be capable of much conversation. But I would start reading this psalm, and they would be able to join in the words because it was so deeply inside them. It is a great psalm to memorize, and we just sung a version of it as a hymn. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters for his name's sake. He leads me in right paths. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Suppose my path is through the valley of the shadow of death. Suppose my beloved, in fact, dies. Still, you are with me. This is true to my experience. God was with me and with my wife, Terry. And she knew it, and I knew it. There were fears, and there were always uncertainties. But Terry had the sense that she was in God's hands, and the path was one that would end in the house of the Lord forever. She did not know whether the various treatments she had to go through would be effective or not, but it gave her strength and comfort to know that God knew those things, and she was in God's hands, and God loved her. Quite often, we do not see until afterwards how the path can be headed in the right direction. But when you get to be old, like me, it is easier to see that your life has a certain shape. I've come increasingly to agree with T.S. Eliot in his poem, Little Gidding, which is the last of his four quartets. We shall not cease from exploration, he writes. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time through the unknown remembered gate when the last earth left to discover is that which was the beginning at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. The end is where we start from, 
What does he mean? Well, we cannot say what he means except by repeating the poem. But here is an idea. I have been thinking about the shape of my professional life because I am at the end of 50 years as a member of the faculty of a university. When I was preparing remarks for my retirement conference, I came to see that I have been trying all these years to understand the relation between my mother's deep personal piety and love of the church and my father's dedication to the life of reason, which prevented him from affirming the clauses of the Apostles' Creed. All three of the books in the trilogy I have just finished have been about this relation. I have not succeeded in satisfying either of these two voices in my head, and I probably never will. But my point for now is that this shape of my life, which I now see towards the end of it, was already present in seed at the beginning. Now I see it as it were for the first time. The story of the road to Emmaus, which Paul Smith preached on last Sunday, has some of this same character. Jesus takes the two disciples, as Paul said, through their grief, not around it, but through it. They tell, tell him what they've experienced, the death of their Lord and teacher and rumors of the disappearance of his body from the tomb. But what he shows them, going back through Moses and the prophets, is that his life and death and resurrection were already present at the beginning of the history of their people. And Paul referenced the, two, the first two chapters of Genesis. The end was in the beginning. But there's something else that T.S. Eliot gives us in Little Giddy. The end is also itself a beginning. Jesus makes as if to walk on to the next village, and the two disciples come to realize that their hearts have been burning within them as he talked and that they needed to do something to make Jesus stay with them. They urge him strongly to stay. And he goes into the inn with them. He takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. And their eyes are opened. The bread is broken because the Good Shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And when Jesus disappears, they turn around and go back to join the other disciples in Jerusalem. For me, likewise, 
there have been significant endings. But they are not the end of my life. As I described to you last summer, I went on a pilgrimage with my sister, who had earlier lost her beloved. And the two of us were grieving together, like Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus. And I was given the thought of a simple book for my fellow pilgrims. The end is also a beginning. Jesus is the shepherd, and he takes his two sheep on a right path for his name's sake, a path through their grief and uncertainty after the death of their teacher and Lord. And the path involves a new beginning, a turning around. I need to go on to what Jesus says next. For he is the gate for the sheep. He says, whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. This teaching has been a stumbling block for many. It has been a stumbling block for my own two sons. Jesus seems to be saying, as he says elsewhere in John's Gospel, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have said for many years at St. John's that we stand for a generous orthodoxy. This is a phrase coined by Hans Frey, who used to teach at Yale Divinity School. Even though we are not committed to his understanding of the phrase, I think it will be useful to look at his work. It is very directly related to this passage in John 10. And I've been helped here by reading Drew Collins's excellent book, the unique and universal Christ, refiguring the theology of religions. Hans Frey uses the phrase in the following sentence. He talks of theology, I quote, as a kind of generous orthodoxy, which would have in it an element of liberalism and an element of evangelicalism. This may make your blood run cold. You may not want to be either a liberal or an evangelical, and a theology which combines elements of both would be the worst possible combination. But it is worth looking in more detail at what he means. And I will start by what he is trying to preserve from liberalism and move then go on to evangelicalism. I should say also that in his life work, as, to, as opposed to just this use of this phrase, 
He was generous in a different sense. He was open to all sorts of different expressions of the Christian faith. He was an Episcopal priest, but before that, a Quaker and a Baptist minister. In terms of liberalism, Fry's idea is that we need to preserve the sense that Jesus is present in the world outside scripture and the church. Jesus is the second Adam through whom we are all offered a new humanity. And we can see tie signs and tokens of this in what Fry called the ordinary kindness and natural gentleness of communal life. I would add something from my own experience of working on congressional staff, on the staff of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. We had a group of staff from all over Congress, House and Senate, Democrat and Republican, and we were all Christians. And because of this, because we had a higher loyalty, we could meet together and pray for the country. I don't know if they're still doing that. Probably not. I sometimes got the sense that the spirit was working towards justice and peace through our work. As Psalm 103 puts it, the Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. If we are working ourselves towards justice and peace, we are working with the Spirit. It is true that we can also sometimes be aware of the opposite of a power beyond ourselves working towards disunity, towards the destruction of justice and peace. Jesus talks about the ruler of this world in John 16, and Revelation talks not only about Jerusalem, but about Babylon. But the conviction of liberal Christians is that the good is more fundamental than the evil and will in the end prevail. And when we work for justice and peace, we are, so to speak, on the winning side. But generous orthodoxy also wants to preserve an element of evangelicalism. What is this and what is evangelicalism? The term has been appropriated in public discourse by a particular political agenda. And this is not what Hans Frey had in mind. When I was teaching at Calvin College, now university, we used to insist on the distinction between evangelicals and fundamentalists. Fundamentalists, we said, believed in the inerrancy of scripture 
on its literal interpretation. And we evangelicals believed in the truth of scripture, but not in its inerrancy in that sense. But the meaning of the term literal sense is itself disputed. Hans Frey wanted to maintain the literal sense of scripture, but he meant the plain sense. And this included allegory and metaphor, and indeed all of the four traditional senses or ways of reading the scriptural text. Catherine Green McCright, especially in her first book on the interpretation of Genesis, but also in her new commentary on Galatians, has eloquently explored this idea. What generous orthodoxy preserves from evangelicalism is the insistence that the particularity of the gospel account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection has to come first before we extrapolate to the universal Christ and the new humanity. Here is a quote from Fry. For it is he, and none other, Jesus, the Son of God, who is the representative man, the second Adam, representative of human identity. Because he has an identity, mankind has an identity, each man in his particularity as the adopted brother of Jesus. Put differently, our access to the universal Christ is through the plain sense of the scriptural record of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We need both, then. Both the sense that Christ is working in the world through the Spirit and not just in the church, and the sense that our primary access to Christ is through the special revelation of Scripture. And I think we can go further. Sometimes the witness to the universal Christ that we find outside the church can correct the understanding of Christ inside the church. Sometimes the church lags behind. Sometimes the church feels the perversity of the world so acutely that it walls itself off and adopts a defensive posture behind the walls it has created. And then it cannot hear what Christ is saying outside those walls. A generous orthodoxy is open to the world to the extent that the spirit is active in the world, no more and no less. But we do not know before we start expectantly and hopefully listening where that activity of the spirit is going to come. At St. John's, we don't have to have a technical definition of generous orthodoxy, but it is our aspiration to both hold on to the plain sense of the gospel and be open to what the Spirit is teaching in the rest of the world. 
So we should return to the passage from John's Gospel. I have other sheep, Jesus says, that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. The most straightforward way to take this is that Jesus is talking about the Gentile converts who will come into the flock when the gospel is preached beyond Israel. We Gentiles are all outsiders who've been invited into the family. But perhaps there is an extension here that we can make. Perhaps Jesus is talking to people outside the church in the same way as he says he's talking to people outside Israel, sheep that do not belong to this fold, bringing them in. This does not mean that we have to stop missionary work because seeing the particularity of Jesus is still our main access and still what the world needs. But as we go about sharing the good news, we have to be open always to the possibility that the sharing can and should go in both directions. We have to listen for possible truth in what the world is saying to us, as well as what we are saying to the world. But now we need to go back to the first half of the passage. Jesus says, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. And then later, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I've been emphasizing that Christians can learn from the world and that Christ is active through the Spirit in the world outside the church. But Christ is not the only spiritual force active in the world outside the church. There are thieves and robbers who come to steal and kill and destroy. I now live in the relatively sheltered world of American academia. But sometimes when I talk to my non-Christian colleagues in the philosophy department or the religious studies department, or I read their work, I meet a kind of tone deafness about the content and meaning of the religious texts they are reading or whose ideas they're using. It is as though the spirit of the age has stolen this meaning from them or killed it or destroyed it so that they cannot any longer see it or hear it. This means that we need caution as well as openness. When I read Aristotle, for example, I have to be constantly alert to the possibility that what he's saying is something a Christian cannot and should not say. But this is the realm of ideas. The persecution of Christians in the world 
is often overt and unambiguous. In Syria, Christians are being driven out of their ancient communities, some of the most ancient in the world. Christians are being killed because they are Christian in Pakistan, in Nigeria, in Egypt. The house churches are being persecuted in China, where I've been several times to talk to them. When I talked in Pakistan publicly, I had to have an armed guard beside me at all times. I don't mean to minimize any of this, but still I believe in generous orthodoxy. We have to defend both parts of this, both the orthodoxy and the generosity, even though they will sometimes be in tension with each other. May Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep, lead us into right paths for his name's sake. Amen.